That truly is a truth applauding for what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord, our joy, our rock. Father, we just thank you so much for the inexpressible joy that we have because Jesus Christ has taken away our sins and made it possible for us to live a life of freedom from sin and to worship you. So Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us, help us in our need, help us to have hearts that thirst after righteousness, help us, oh God, to recognize that you bring to us what we truly need. Our hearts, our soul is thirsty and can only be filled by you. And so I pray that your instruction to us today would do just that, and that as we continue to consider the place of Christ in our lives, I think today of those who have allowed their hearts to grow cold or wander away, those who don't know you, those maybe listening to us from afar who need a Savior. I pray today, O oh Father, that you would cause hearts to turn to you. You are the God of salvation, and we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, has anybody here ever been scammed? Or attempted to be scammed? Is that not daily now? I mean, in the same day, I get a phone call that says, if I don't pay up, the CRA is going to come after me with a lawsuit. While getting a text from the CRA that says I have $324.19 of credit, I just have to press this hyperlink and my bank account and they'll put it there. There's the um, grandparent scam, particularly grandmother scam. Call the grandmother, it's the granddaughter on the other end of the line, saying that they're in jail for speeding. But Sally, you don't sound like yourself. No, I broke my nose in the scuffle with the police and under the arrest. Can you just wire me $1,000 and they'll let me out of jail? Do you know that in 2021, Canadians were bilked out of $50 million on romance scams alone? An average of $54,000 a person in Canada, scammed by false romance. Loneliness is a very lucrative business. So is Jesus a scam? John in his gospel is proposing to us evidence 
of the authenticity and the reality of Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4? We have been examining the evidence for the authenticity of Christ over this last number of weeks. We have been told that he's God's sacrifice. He's the bridegroom of Israel. Saved a wedding. Cleaned out the obstruction clutter uh, from the temple, breathing worship back into that space, schooling a religious leader by night on who he really is, baptizing, but we find out not baptizing, and then in this interlude between John 3 and 4, at the end of John 3, the gospel writer forces a decision as he does throughout his gospel. In the verse 36 of John 3, it says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That is a decision point, declaration. To all humanity, either you're for Christ or you're against Christ. And if you are for Christ, you have eternal life. If you are against Christ, you do not have eternal life. And the wrath of God remains on you. And this gospel, it seeks to bring us to a recognition of who Jesus is, that you might believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who can grant you eternal life, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And it's interesting because then at the next two words following that verse are the Pharisees. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. The Pharisees reject him, continue to reject him, and are now in some sort of skirmish about uh, worrying about who's baptizing more people, John the Baptist or Jesus. And John clarifies it for us by saying, although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once, once more to Galilee. When Jesus learned that, that there was a controversy growing over who's baptizing, he decided to leave town Allow John the Baptist to continue the work that God had given to him without interference, without unnecessary controversy, unnecessarily escalating controversy and moving the time of his hour up, which he did not want to do. He moves to Galilee. And the GPS direction to Galilee takes you through Samaria. At least that's the most direct route. You know when you plot it in and you, um, it says, do you want to avoid uh, toll roads or whatever? 
Jesus decided not to avoid going through Samaria. Although most of the Jews did, it was a longer route to go around to go to Galilee. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And Jesus and his entourage were Jews. But they decided to plow right through Samaria. We're going to see why in the text. So how about you this morning, before we even launch into anything? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him or her. Well, let's look at the text, starting at verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? He didn't have to geographically go through Samaria. But in the mission that he was following, according to his father, he had to go through Samaria. We're going to see why. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tried as he was, sorry, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That would be a trigger word or two trigger words for theologians in Israel at the time. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, 
A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and other reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the Word of God. Well, in Nicodemus' evening class that we learned last week, how God has expressed his love for his human creation. He has made a way to be rescued from condemnation. He has made a way to be rescued from judgment. He has made a way to be rescued from his wrath. He has made a way to be rescued from your capital offense. Have you received that gift? Be commuted of your sins. His love isn't anything goes, it's Christ died for sinners. And throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, there are physical word pictures um, that appeal to our human senses, that help us to get a grasp of how we're to understand spiritual things. And some of them have to do with natural things like food and drink. And for instance, in the, in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. If you're thirsty, come to the waters. Come, eat, drink. The great ceremony of the church is to gather at the Lord's table and 
and eat and drink as a symbol of our craving the, the, with thirst and with hunger the, the, the Lord God himself. And these pictures are to, to help us because we're encased and trapped in physical bodies to, to have some sort of understanding of how our spiritual senses are to, to desire and long for God. The theological word pictures you're about to encounter in this particular incident are not unique to the New Testament writers. They, they cover the span of the scriptures, an invitation to fully desire God and be satisfied by him and him alone. I want you to see that as we set the stage here for a con- the contrasting conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus and then now with the Samaritan woman. He, he, he talks to the top of the spiritual intelligentsia of Israel, Nicodemus, and, and now he's going to talk to a Samaritan goodbye girl. And, and we call her that because she, said, she has been said goodbye to so many times in her life. Maybe you can understand what that's like, maybe not. She's burned through five marriages. Now living with a guy classified by Jewish theologians, listen, as a perpetual menstruant. When Jewish men were, to, were look, looked at Samaritan women, they saw them as permanently in menstruation, which meant permanently unclean. So they called them perpetual menstruant from the crib. So much did they loathe Samaritans. If you get a grip of Jesus and his disciples wandering through Samaria, even the disciples going and buying food in Samaria, is unthinkable. This is an impossible moment for anything good theologically to happen. This wasn't expected at all. See, the Samaritans were um, half-breed people. They were loathed by the Jews because they were assimilated by Gentiles. In 722 BC, when the Jews once again had run God's patience to the limit and he allowed them to go into exile and into Samaria. The Assyrians brought Babylonians and Medians to repopulate the area between Galilee and Judea. And they interbred Jews, Babylonians, Jews, Medians. God's people weren't supposed to assimilate with other nations, not because it was a racial thing. It was never a racial thing. It was a spiritual thing. God's not opposed to biracial marriage. He's opposed to intermarriage between faiths. Why? Because someone's faith is going to win out. Someone's faith is going to drag the other person into it. That's what God explained it in the Old Testament. Why didn't he want his people to marry into other faiths? 
not so much races, other faiths, because they would steal their hearts. So rather than keep this a burden and passion about the state of their hearts, the Jews just took it to an extreme limit of just hating Samaritans. So we have a hated Samaritan woman from a Jewish perspective, considered unclean, a life of broken promises, a lot of misrepresentations, I would presume, faced a lot of scams in her life, a lot of hopes dashed, a lot of hurt, a lot of bitterness toward men, maybe. And here she meets a man at a well, a Jewish man at a well. I want to share with you this morning three life-changing revelations that jump out at us from the text here, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And the first is this, Jesus has the water that everyone needs. Jesus has the water that everyone needs. The thirsty Samaritan woman who was untouchable, <laughs> untouchable until she met Jesus who touched her. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus sanctifies everything he touches. Jesus makes holy everything he touches. So Jesus asks her, will you give me a drink? And she says, I'm, I'm a Samaritan woman. How in the world, how are you even thinking of asking me for a drink? Do you not know who I am? <laughs> the interesting irony of all of this is she didn't know who he was. The real question in this one is, do you know who I am? That's what Jesus said to her. She said, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. How can Jesus be asking her this? So for her, from her perspective, is this just another scam? Is, is this guy some sort of, um, some sort of smooth talker, some sort of trickster? Because you've got no satchel to draw water and this well is very deep and you're suggesting that I could give you something? You don't have anything that I can see that you can give me. And I've heard this line before. I've heard it a few times and I've got burned every time. Whatever you're talking about, it must be greater water. Whatever this is you're promoting, it must be a better well and a better water. And better water. Because she says to him, where can I get this? Where can, where can you get this living water? And then she asks another ironic question for we as an audience. Are you greater than our father Jacob? You know, well, it just so happens I am. You know, but he, no, he resists that. We get, to, we get to move along and watch the brilliance of Christ as he, as he draws this, this 
suspicious woman, suspicious from her perspective, woman, in, into his life. In the same way as he draws us into his life. In the same way as he drew you into his life. In the same way anyone who's skeptical here this morning, he will draw you into his life. Patiently, kindly, compassionately, carefully, lovingly. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Which is kind of fascinating here because Jacob's other name is what? Israel. You think you're so special, you Jews. I'll have you know that our father is Israel. So Jesus is listening to her and she's kind of incriminating her father, Jacob, in terms of his greatness by saying, he gave us this well, this physical well. And he drank from it himself and gave it to his sons and gave it to his flocks and gave it to his herds. And we're thinking, isn't that interesting? Her father needs things like wells and water. The one she's talking to creates things, needs nothing. Later says, my food is to do the will of my father. My, you know nothing of the food that I have. And so she's, she's building the case. Why, why wouldn't he give us this water that you're talking about? I mean, are you greater than him? And Jesus is talking about, he, he says, well, listen, everyone who drinks this water from your father's well is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the well that I give, whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up with eternal life, welling up to eternal life. I'm talking about permanently thirst-quenching water. I'm talking about living water. Water that'll enable you to live forever and never be thirsty. Now, where would Jesus get such an idea? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the Old Testament? Maybe the prophecies, the Messianic Age prophecies? Such as, for instance, Isaiah 49, verse 8 and 10. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Listen, they will not hunger or thirst for he who has compassion on them will guide them and will lead them to springs of water. See, the disadvantage that she was at is the Samaritans paid no attention to anything beyond the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And even the five, first five books of Moses that they had were tampered with, okay? So she doesn't have Isaiah. She doesn't have Jeremiah. She doesn't have Zechariah. But the Pharisees did. The theologians did. The ones he had already been teaching did. Or for instance, Zechariah 14.8. 
and it will be in that day that springs of living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. The Messianic age. What is the expectation of Messiah? What should we be looking for? What kinds of things should we be anticipating? When the real Messiah comes, we should be anticipating living waters. And Jeremiah defines it for us in Jeremiah 17, 13. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yahweh. Do you see that? It's defined for us. The prophet Jeremiah has, has defined living water for us. It's the living God himself. Jesus is offering to her God. And in offering to her God, he's offering to her the eternal life, the life of God, the life that God enjoys. That's what we're offered in, in being granted the salvation by Jesus Christ. We are offered not only eternal life, but we are offered the present life of God that he enjoys now. If you know Jesus Christ, you are living presently with the living waters of God that satisfies your soul. So John, keep in mind, is writing back the story that took place to an audience like ours today, giving us evidence that Jesus is the Christ and filling it with the teachings of Christ who pointed to the messianic age, bringing him the credibility of the Old Testament scriptures. The woman says to him, sir, okay, give me this water. Verse 15, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But I think as we read through this story, she's still pretty skeptical. Sure, go ahead, give me this water that I'll never be thirsty again. Uh, I'm, okay, you, you give me this water. Uh, you got nothing, let's see it. Let's see what you can do. It's at this point that Jesus says to her, go and call your husband. She says to him, as her heart is pierced, because now I've got to tell this Jewish guy, and they think they know everything about religion and everything, and now I have to tell him, as a Samaritan woman, more reasons why he will actually reject me. So she says to him, doesn't say she's had five husbands, she just says to him, I don't have a husband. But she's living with a guy. And Jesus looks at her, and I can imagine the compassion with which he looked at her. Because remember, he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He looked at her, and said, you've told the truth. He had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. At the same time as he reminds us that the living God does not recognize common law, marriages, as marriage. 
The reason Jesus reaches deep into her heart at this point is not to embarrass her or shame her, but that she might realize deep in her heart she has guilt and sin and harm and hurt that she desperately needs relief from. And that's what the living water is all about. Unless you have a real thirst for what God has to offer, convinced that you really need it, you won't really want it. And that's how Jesus draws us to, to himself. He brings us to the place where we realize that in and of ourselves, we've made a mess. And unless someone has a rescue plan for us, we're going to continue to go down. And she has no husband now, just a guy living with her, going nowhere. The writer of Proverbs writes this, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It starts out differently, sin. But it ultimately ends in the same place every time. In the depths of despair. Proverbs 9 is an interesting proverb. It corrects the impression that men are saved, as Kidner writes, or lost merely through an isolated, impulsive decision. The choice is seen ripening into character and so into destiny. Jesus wants to do a deep work in her life. Not some sort of immediate gratification of her physical needs for water. That's where she was about. Just give me water that I don't have to come back here at noontime when it's so hot. I'm here because I don't, I don't like the shame of when everybody else is around. They usually come earlier or later in the day when it's cooler. I have to come at noon because I can't take all the mocking, all the people looking, at, looking down at me from the town. I can't take any more of it. Just give me water that I don't ever have to come back here again, that I don't even have to see people anymore. Jesus is taking her far deeper than that. You need something better than that. You need your shame removed, your guilt taken away. You need to be made whole. She's still not ready, though. She decides to create a diversion when she hears that he knows. You must say, I can see that you are a prophet. Literally, she's saying, I can see that you are the prophet. <laughs> the only prophet that she would have known of, because they didn't have, as I told you, after the Pentateuch, they didn't have anything. The only prophet she knew was Moses. And the promise that there was going to be a prophet like Moses, who would be the Messiah. <laughs> so she's starting to move in this direction, say, like, is this possible? Because... I, I, and, and so she decides to change the subject, as so hap often happens. She changes the topic to her personal life to say, well, you know what, maybe I should tell you about my religion. And I, I'm, I'm confused about my religion versus your religion. My religion says we have to worship here at Mount Gerizim. Your religion says we have to worship at Jerusalem. I don't know what, I don't know what to believe. People have been kicking me around my whole life. What am I supposed to believe? Isn't that, the way? Isn't that the question that people have out there? Why are there so many religions? Why are there so many churches? Why are there so many different churches? Which one is right? Who's telling the truth? Where, where, are these all scams? What are these? 
And Jesus reveals to her, secondly, the worship that everyone must offer. He tells her first about the water that everyone needs, which is living water. Now he's telling her about the worship that everyone must offer. Do you notice what she says here? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That's, that's a key to understanding where her heart lies, where, who she follows. She follows tradition. Our fathers, my culture, the way I was raised, the way I was brought up. Isn't that the state of our world? Isn't that the way it is? Doesn't it make sense? Children are brought up in homes. Homes teach them traditions. They follow traditions. You want, to answer, you want to answer the question of why are there so many religions? Why are there so many churches? Why are there so many things? Because there's so many people with all of their own ideas. And they offer them to their children. their strange ideas and they raise their children with their traditions. Well, this is what our fathers worship. This is what I believe. This is what I've been taught. I mean, the argument can be put back to us as well. But we're going to see what Jesus does with it. Because this is what we need to understand. Our fathers, this mountain, but you Jews there. So Jesus, of course, says, it sounds close enough for me. And since God is a God of love, good enough. Good try. You're in. Because all religions are going in the same direction anyway. Is that what Jesus does? No, he does not. Jesus, you see what Jesus says? You're talking about our fathers. In verse 21, he says, but I'm talking about the Father. This is the confidence we have. There is one God in the universe. There is one God, creator God. The creator, Father. And Jesus said, well, this is what the Father says you Samaritans worship what you do not know Jesus had no problem saying to her your religion is ignorant your religion is based on ignorance your religion is based upon what you do not know but I am telling you what I do know I'm telling you that I know. I'm telling you that what I know is exclusive, not inclusive. And I know because I know the Father. If your religion is your own version of Scripture and selected omissions, your religion is ignorance. That's what he's literally saying to her. Your, your religion is your own version of Scripture. You have, five, you have the five books of Moses and you eliminate everything else. And that's tainted as well. You've omitted. So your religion is ignorance. You say this, I say I believe, I think this, God thinks this. Listen, here's the, de- the defining marks of true religion, he says. You will worship in spirit and truth. That combination is indivisible. The spirit and truth. In Ezekiel 36, 
verses 25 to 27, which is a beautiful tie-in from John 3 last week to John 4 today. Ezekiel the prophet says this, uh, uh, speaking of God, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will be careful to do my commandments. By putting my spirit in you, I will enable you to follow the truth. Those who will worship the Father, the worship that the Father seeks are those who are worshiping from the spirit within them who leads them to truth. Spirit and truth, indivisible. Can other religions worship our God? The answer is no. Without the spirit, And without the truth of God's word, you cannot worship God. You cannot worship the one God. Can unbelievers worship God? The answer is no, they cannot. Unless you have the Spirit and you are, by the Spirit, uh, speaking the truth, acknowledging the truth, believing the truth, you cannot worship the one God. So true religion is characterized by truth knowledge-based, and spirit-empowered. False religion is always the same. It's selective, it's emotional, experiential-based, it's feel, and it's superstitious. Always the same. Doesn't matter how it comes packaged, what kind of religious packaging comes with it, it's always the same. It's always selective, it's emotional, experiential-based, it's feel, it's superstitious. In other words, it's to prevent bad luck. I believe this, I follow this, I follow the traditions of my fathers because I don't want to have bad luck. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is truth, knowledge-based, spirit-empowered to prevent the wrong destiny, what we know. You will worship in spirit and truth. God gives light and his spirit through his son all as a sign of his love. So will you worship in spirit and truth? Are you worshiping in spirit and truth? Finally, he says, I who speak to you am he. This is a powerful statement. It's literally, he's he's saying, I am. I am. Ego emi. The construction there is powerful and amazing. In fact, it's one of the few times that Jesus actually declares himself. And here he is in Samaria. Why? Because they were hungry, they were, they were willing, they were open, they were ready. He says, the harvest, look at the harvest, it's ready. And so he, he offers himself to them, he entrusts himself to them. Remember a few chapters back, he did not entrust himself to those who were stubborn and would not believe even though the truth is right before them. Here he comes to an ignorant people who had been misled by the traditions but were open, we're, we're willing to listen, we're willing to hear, we're willing to learn. And he opens himself up to them. I am. And so we, we close with the final, the final of these three. Jesus leads us to the work every believer is call, called to engage. And that is this, to do the will of God and to finish his work. The mission of the harvest. He says, open up your eyes. The guys came back. The disciples came back, saw him sitting, talking to a woman. And interestingly there, they said they, they couldn't believe that he was talking to a woman. They didn't, it doesn't even mention in the text Samaritan, which I find fascinating. 
Because even speaking to a woman was quite unusual. But they didn't dare ask him a question. They'd already learned, the disciples had already asked, learned a question. When Jesus is up to something, don't put your foot in your mouth. Just don't. Just shut up and learn. Just listen. And so should we. Just listen to Jesus. Just watch him. Listen to him. And he says to these guys, you know, we talk about harvest being four months away. Open up your eyes. And he says that to the church today. Open your eyes. Look. Look around you. Look at the Samaritan women that are around you who've been kicked around and scammed and beat on and others around us who have been hurt and hassled, guilt-ridden and shamed. Open your eyes and look. They're ready for something different. The harvest is ready. Some people have already sown into their lives. You maybe don't even know that. You, you could be the reaper. You could be the one who harvests. I, I myself, Jesus is saying, I myself might have already sown into their lives. He talks about this. Others have done the, the work. God has done the work. Who did the work in the Samaritans? Who did the work for the Samaritans? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the, the missionaries who were supposed to go to the Samaritans. Who did the work? God had to do the work himself. God had prepared their hearts. And there's a great harvest of Samaritans. We haven't heard of a harvest yet. No harvest of Jews. He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. He comes to the Samaritans, and God has done the sowing already, and now they're ready to hear. And they turn to him, and they listen to her testimony. And her testimony is important, like a, baptist, like a baptismal testimony this morning. How encouraging that is. It's always, I always tell baptismal people, listen, you have this great opportunity to testify to what Jesus has done in your life. And there will be people in the church or people watching who, who identify with you for some reason. Maybe haven't identified with me in all the things that I've said, but maybe they identify with you. And maybe they identify with your story. And maybe they connect with your story. And maybe they say, maybe I need that Jesus too. That's what happens. And then, so they came to Jesus because of her story, and then they believed him because of his word, which is a lasting and powerful work in their lives. His food, listen, is to do the will of God and the work that he has sent us to do. So often we are all enthusiastic about the works of God benefiting us, but we don't want to take upon ourselves the will of God and what he has for us. These two go hand in hand, the will of God and the work of God. The work of God and the will of God. So Jesus says, my food is to do the will of God and to finish the work that he's given me. And my drink is living water. There's a void that only Christ can fill in every single human being's life. There is a thirst, an eternal thirst that only Christ can fill. And people fight it, they seek to reject it, they seek to go all around it, they seek to find some other reason to reject it, they, they say, well, the, people teach this, people teach that, what's the truth? Listen, your soul is thirsty for living water, and that living water can only be sated by 
God himself, the creator. A thirst that only living water can quench. Do you know the gift of God and who gives it? Jesus gives us truth to believe, a spirit to receive, work to do, and will, his will to embrace. Spirit and truth. Father, I pray this morning and thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, Messiah, Savior, Lord, the one who can give living water that we take and never thirst again because he is the living water. He is very God, Yahweh, Jehovah, God, who enables us to walk in his ways and within us wells up a spring of water it gives life. And so, Lord, I pray that there, if there are people here this morning who are still living in death under the wrath of God because of some hurt or some tradition or some... Father, it doesn't change the fact that we're thirsty. And those things have not quenched our thirst. You are the one who gives us living water, and our thirst is gone forever. Oh, Lord, give us that living water. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.